If you were to look up the greatest speeches of all time, you would be taken through the marvelous moments in history of the human race in which precise words and passionate delivery put voice to the thoughts and the needs of the people who heard. But one speech would be missing from the list. Many of these speeches still ring true today as you think about your greatest desires for your life or for the lives of people that you know. But one speech hasn't made the list. Among the ones that have are undoubtedly some of the great speeches of our time. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech in 1963, or Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address 100 years earlier in 1863, or Winston Churchill's We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech in 1940. And those are just in recent history. When you look back hundreds of years before, you can find in antiquity Martin Luther's Here I Stand speech at the Diet of Worms in 1521, or the speech of Alexander the Great to motivate his troops in 335, or Demosthenes, the third Philippique of 342 BC, and many, many more. But one never seems to make the list. Partially because we don't know the exact script. Partially because of its source. And partially because of its content. But scholars and historians estimate that as many as 300,000 people walked for miles to hear this speech. And it was a speech that drove them, like so many other good speeches, to a very particular action. And if they responded in the intended way in this speech, it would change their lives forever. One of the greatest speeches that never makes the list is the speech of John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. And sadly, we only know about the speech. We do not exactly know what was said. But nevertheless, it's included as Jesus is introduced to us in the Gospel of Mark. And so, let's look there together. Follow as I read Mark 1, starting at verse 1. This is what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him 
and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This morning we begin a new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. And as we dive in, let me give you a little background about the content of the book and its author. The Gospel of Mark is the earliest of the four Gospels. It's also the shortest. In fact, both Matthew and Luke borrow a significant amount of material from this Gospel in their own accounting of the life of Jesus and his ministry. And John Mark, the author, was a man who had a questionable beginning. He's mentioned in Acts 13 as the guy who abandoned the Apostle Paul on the first missionary journey. <laughs> and as he abandoned him, as a result, Paul was unwilling to take him on the second missionary journey which caused a great tension between this new and growing dynamic of local churches. And so Paul and Barnabas at odds with each other. Paul went one way with Silas, and Barnabas went one way with John Mark. And we know that eventually they reconciled. And Mark is listed at a couple other places in the New Testament, Philemon 24 and Colossians 4.10, as a fellow laborer in the gospel, who, and he gives his greeting to the saints. And Paul actually seeks Mark's presence to come to him, and he mentions that in Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4.11. And I tell you that because Mark's story is a good one to remember. It's a story of a guy who started out poorly, but came around. <laughs> it's a story of a guy who started out in weakness, but the Lord ended up using in a great and mighty strength. It's the story that is the same as some of our stories. Because some of you had a questionable beginning. <laughs> some of you started out in weakness, and the Lord brought you to faithfulness. Some of you, maybe even right now, are living in that place of weakness and thinking about abandoning what the Lord has for you. But this is a good reminder. Mark's life is a good reminder. But the story of your life is not yet written. And even right now, maybe you live in tension or consternation or even rebellion against God. 
that he can still use you in this life to do incredible and mighty things. It's not the message of the book. It's not the message of this sermon. But it's one of the messages behind the message. God can take wayward people and use them mightily. And Mark is an encouragement to us in that way. Beyond that, we know that Mark was close to the Apostle Peter. He received much of his accounting of the gospel from Peter. And through the careful memory of the Apostle, the careful arrangement of the material, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark was able to write this beautiful and powerful description of the life of the king of the world, King Jesus. The original audience of the Gospel of Mark was Gentiles in Rome. And he wanted them to understand that even though they lived under the banner of the empire and under the rule of the Roman Empire, who was functionally the king of the entire known world at that time, there was a greater king who had come. King Jesus. And the introductory verse to the book points to what he is going to say about him. Look at it with me. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This Jesus I'm going to tell you about is not just a here today, gone tomorrow celebrity. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a Caesar. He's not just a miracle worker. He is the Son of God. And with that, let's look a little more carefully at the passage. Hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, his coming was foretold through the prophets. But not only his coming, also the coming of the messenger, John the Baptist. He would help the people make way for the king. And it says that in verse 2 and 3 as it quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths Straight. The prophet Malachi gives a similar prophecy in chapter 3, verse 1 of his book. And both of these prophecies mention the messenger. It was going to be a specific person, John the Baptist. But the focus of the prophecy is not on the messenger himself. It's on the one in which he is preparing the way for and immediately we see right from the prophecy to the next verse, John appears. The baptizer is introduced. And his appearance is not typical for the day. He's described as one who is clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. You might say that he didn't fit in with the Hollywood crowd. <laughs> He was not up on the latest fashion trends of Jerusalem. But don't be mistaken. John's dress and his bizarre diet 
did not indicate that he was oblivious to what was happening. It was very intentional because his lifestyle pointed to his message. John took the appearance of the prophet Elijah. The prophet Elijah is mentioned in 2 Kings 1.8 in these types of terms. And he did so because just as Elijah had done, John was going to call the entire country to national repentance. His dress was a protest. It was a protest against opulence and self-serving behavior that was part of the day. Self-absorbed people engaged in such things. But his appearance was meant to display a life that rejected the material, that highlighted the spiritual, and had repentance, repentance, repentance right at the core. And here we see how he prepared the way. In verses four and five, the message begins. John appeared, it says, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, as you know, or may know, the word baptism or baptize literally means to immerse. And John's baptism was completely unique in this way because no one had quite done it to this point. In the ancient world, there were baptisms of some kind. There were ritual cleansings that happened, especially for religious elite. And in other ceremonies, even baptismal type ceremonies, there were ceremonies for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. But the call for Jews to be baptized, common normal Jews, by the masses, was completely a new thing. And this baptism was a baptism of a physical action but a baptism that pointed to a spiritual posture. And the posture was one of the repentance of sin, it says. So envision it with me. Just try to picture it in your mind's eye. Not 10, not 100, not 1,000, but tens of thousands of people over the course of day upon day upon day moving out of Judea and Jerusalem toward the river and not just to engage in an activity, not just to engage in some kind of service of worship, but to confess their sin and to do it both through word and through action. It's a striking thing to picture. And the location is interesting because John strategically baptized in the wilderness. This was not something you could just happen to come across in downtown Jerusalem on the day. Like, yeah, I'm going to participate today in the local religious thing that is happening. They had to go to him. Their act of repentance was an act of their will. 
And just as the people of Israel had followed God out of Egypt into the wilderness during the Exodus hundreds of years earlier and thus found their freedom, here, as the baptizer comes, the people of Israel are called once again to come out of their locale into the wilderness and thus to find their freedom. But their freedom would only come as they repented. And their freedom would only come after they embraced God's eternal king, who's the one who could forgive them of the sins that they repented from. John came on the scene, and it's not what somebody would normally expect he came on the scene preaching about sin. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to pave the way for somebody that I want people to love and admire and follow, that's probably not the first thing that comes to mind. You might expect John to come forward and to extol the great qualities of the coming king, to speak of his marvelous works, to speak of his high character, to talk about his mighty victory, to engender goodwill of the people toward this one so that they would love him before they even saw him. But that is not what he does. He gives them a message about sin. And the message was clear. The only way to welcome the Son of God is through repentance from sin. And even though John's context is unique in a specific moment in history, there's a spiritual principle there that remains true today. You want to welcome the Son of God into your life? You want the things of God among you, you want the blessing of God upon you. There is a way to welcome him. <laughs> the only way to welcome the Son of God is through repentance from sin. And that begs the question, well, what exactly is repentance and how do I do it? <laughs> well, repentance is not merely apologizing, though that's part of it. It's more than that. When you train children, as many of you have done successfully, as some of us have done unsuccessfully, as many of us are struggling and trying to do day in and day out, when they make a mistake or when they rebel, an apology is appropriate. But an apology is not enough. Repentance a changing of your ways is required. And so repentance has at least, at least three parts to it. The first is an acknowledgement of sin. And this is half the battle for some of us, especially in our day where we want to blur the moral lines and lower them in the name of tolerance or in self-justification. For some of us, even in our pride, it is hard to acknowledge what we do might be sinful. And yet, without acknowledging sin, repentance is not even possible. Christian Smith, uh, Christian sociologist, highlighted a number of years back that in his research, despite the fact that many teenage Americans pray, and many of them actually pray every single day, their prayers always 
nearly always consisted of asking God for help in the situations that they were in. And they rarely, if ever, acknowledged sin or expressed adoration to God. And he goes on to conclude that if that's the case in their conception of God and how they communicate with him in prayer, then this results in a religion that is not a religion of a repentance from sin. He concludes that God becomes distant and is not demanding because his job, at least in the eye of the beholder, is to solve problems and to make people feel good. (laughs) There's nothing here to evoke wonder and adoration. But repentance includes an acknowledgement of sin. It also includes a confession or an apology from sin. Now, you know this to be true, It is a terribly distasteful thing when people are caught in something evil and they wait a while and provide some space and distance and then reemerge and pretend like that evil thing never actually happened, that their offense actually never occurred and hope to just go on pretending like everything is normal. We see this in public life, and we actually also see this very often in private life, don't we? When we don't want to deal with each other in the ways that we should. But in public life, the examples are striking. You think about the last number of years, countless uh, celebrities or public figures have been caught up in sexual misconduct. And then move on without actually apologizing for it and try to reignite their careers. Here's just a couple in the last few years. Uh, The comedian Louis C.K., CBS News executive Les uh, Moonves, author and speaker uh, who I've enjoyed over the years, Garrison Keillor, are just a few who were forced to resign due to sexual misconduct. But then shortly thereafter, shortly after disappearing from the public eye, providing space for the news cycle to die down, reemerge, pretending like nothing's ever happened, and try to reignite their career without apology. Sometimes people can get away with that in Hollywood (laughs) because there's no real relationship between you and the public figure. But in real life, And in real relationships, and in your relationship with the Lord, where there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness. And where there's no forgiveness, there's no reconciliation. Repentance includes acknowledging sin, yes. It also includes remorse or apology or confession of that sin as well. But it includes one more thing. Repentance includes turning away from that sin. The word literally means to turn away or to turn a different direction. Dallas Willard writes a helpful illustration about this. He says, as a child, I lived in an area of southern Missouri where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. And we had more of that than we could use. 
But in my senior year of high school, the Rural Electrification Administration extended its lines into the area we lived and electrical power became available to households and to farms. Now, when those lines came in by our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationships to fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing for food and preserving it, could then be vastly changed for the better. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements, understand them and take practical steps to rely upon them. You may think the comparison rather crude and perhaps in some respects it is, but it will help us to understand Jesus's basic message about the kingdom of heaven and repentance if we pause to reflect on those farmers who in effect heard the message, repent, for electricity is at hand. Repent or turn from your kerosene lamp and lanterns, your icebox and cellars, your scrub boards and rug beaters, the woman-powered sewing machines, and the radios with dry cell batteries. The power that could make their lives far better was right there near to them where by making relatively simple arrangements, they could utilize it. Strangely, there were some who did not accept it. They did not enter the kingdom of electricity. <laughs> some just didn't want to change. Others thought they could not afford it. But repentance means turning away from sin and turning toward God. I think of the little girl that told her friends that she had repented from her sin and was following God. And her friend looked at her and said, are you still a sinner? And the girl said, yes. And the friend said, well, then what's the difference? And the girl said, I used to, before I repented, run toward my sin. <laughs> and now I live a life where I run away from my sin. That is repentance. But so many people want the benefits of God without repentance. So many people want the blessing of God in their life without preparing the way for God. So many people want the forgiveness of the Savior without the preparation that is required. And so that begs the question for you. Have you repented of your sin? Your sin of your pride or your sin of self-determination or your sin of drunkenness or gluttony or your sins that are sexual in their nature or the sins of the mind? What about the sins that occur through your words that you speak. If you want to welcome Jesus into your life, repentance from sin is the way that you open the door to him. And John preached this to thousands as the Savior was coming. 
Now look at verses seven and eight with me. This is the only part of the speech that we actually know the script of. (laughs) It says, he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of those of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with the water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John preached a baptism for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sins, and this baptism was outside. It was an outside, external, physical dynamic. But the message and what happened outside and the posture of repentance on the inside all served to point to the coming king, King Jesus. And when Jesus enters your life, John says, his baptism is a baptism of the inside. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. He changes your life. And not just changes your life, actually gives you a new life as the Spirit of God takes up residence in you and you are changed. And so thousands upon thousands, 10,000 upon 10,000 are repenting of their sin at the side of this river. And John is telling them the way to make way for the coming of the Son of God, the King of the world. And the people respond. And right there as this is happening, day over day over day over day, Jesus shows up. (laughs) And it says in verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John, in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. There are many remarkable things about this, but the first two that come to mind are important. The first is that Jesus himself was actually baptized. The baptism was for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins, but Jesus was sinless. So the question, why would Jesus need to be baptized, is a very good question. And in fact, John asks the same question. (laughs) In Matthew chapter 3, it says in verse 14 that John would have prevented him from being baptized by saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Jesus' baptism was a baptism of identification. The sinless one And the deity placed himself in the middle of sinful humanity. Jesus, in the midst of thousands, placed himself in the midst of those who needed to repent. Jesus placed himself right among those who were guilty before God. Because in just a few years, he would take their guilt and he would take their sin And he would take our guilt. And he would take our sin on as his own. 
Jesus' baptism pointed us to the forgiveness that we would receive from his cross. The baptism points to the cross. And that's amazing. It answers a lot of questions, by the way. Was Jesus hijacked? Did Jesus willingly know that he was going to die? Did he know what was going to happen? Or did humanity overrun him? Jesus knew from the very beginning, from the very first act of his public appearance, that this was leading to the cross. The second amazing thing was not only that Jesus showed up, but that God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, made themselves known in that moment as well. God confirms his message audibly. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't a flash-in-the-pan spiritual figure. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't going to be the ruler they expected. He is the Son of God. And the Spirit of God descends upon him and empowers him for the ministry that from this moment forward is going to commence. And the entire Trinity, all three persons, are present. The Father spoke. The Son spoke emerges from the water and the spirit descends. Jesus was here. The eternal king had arrived. The savior of sinners was present and all who were repentant were making the way for him. And immediately it says he was rushed off into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan And he withstood, of course, we know, that temptation. And his ministry began. The preparation for the king was repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's quite the introduction. This isn't the story of the manger. (laughs) This isn't sweet baby Jesus lying in swaddled cloth. The introduction in the Gospel of Mark is an introduction of repentance. The only way to welcome the Son of God is through repentance from sin. It was the same back then, and it's the same today. You know, we live in the most privileged time in history. You've heard me say that many times. We live on this side of the cross. The King has already come. We already have witness to him. He has already invited us into his rule and to his reign. You have the opportunity to welcome the Son of God, the King of the universe, into your very life. And you do that through repentance. So, my friends, the encouragement for you is not only the introduction of King Jesus and his ministry, But the encouragement and the application for you is if you have not repented, wait no longer. There are many of us that know about Jesus up here or we want the benefits of Jesus right here in our mind, but right here in our heart. We want to do things our own way and we're willing to do it at all costs. There are many of us who want Jesus and want the benefits of his blessing, and we certainly want the benefits of his eternal life. But right here in our heart, our pride 
prevents us from acknowledging our rebellion against God. And the call for you and for me is to repent. There are many of us who have repented before, who have welcomed Jesus in, and yet we still struggle in sin. And so we continue to repent. Because welcoming the Son of God into your life is met with unending grace and mercy and forgiveness. Acknowledge your sin, apologize for it, and turn away from it. And the king will come in. I want to close this morning with a poem by J. Addison Alexander that captures the beautiful dynamic of the coming of Jesus, the struggle with sin for all humanity, and the call for repentance. This is what he writes. He says, There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path. The hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. Oh, where is that mysterious born by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How far can one go on in sin? How long will mercy spare? Where does grace end and where begin the confides of despair? An answer from the sky is sent. Ye who from God depart, while it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. Let's pray. Father, great and mighty are you, holy and just in your ways, perfect and pure into every aspect of your being. And God, we are far from that. Our sin is ever before us. And Father, we pray today that by the work of your spirit, conviction of that sin would fall heavily upon us. We pray today that through your word and through your prompting, you would lead us to repentance. God, and we do so even now. There are many among us who have repented many times before and yet we still sin, we still struggle, we still fall prey. Today we repent. God, there are many among us, I'm sure, who have not bent the knee, who have not bowed their heart to the king, whether that be through pride or self-serving behavior or just thinking that it's not that important. God, and today you call us to repent. And so even now in the quietness of the moment, we confess our sin to you.
God, we thank you that our repentance does not leave us in the place of judgment, but it actually opens the door to new life through your son. We thank you for mercy and grace that are free to us and cost much to him. We pray today that we would live with the reality of this king who has come, that would be encouraged by him, that would be motivated in righteousness, that would be empowered by your spirit, and that we thank you, God, that you use repentance to bring about such change. We pray in his mighty and glorious name. Amen. It has been great to worship with you today. Happy Mother's Day, moms, especially to you. You are a blessing to us. Thank you for all the things that you do that are acknowledged and for the many more things that you do that are never acknowledged. I hope you have a great day with your family today and that is a sweet time. Thank you for making the worship of God a central part of it. You know, the message today as the message of repentance is one that can be challenging for many of us for a variety of reasons, but we can't leave this morning without the final encouragement to say, don't wait. Don't wait to repent. There's nothing ever good that comes from waiting before God. And so if you're here today and God is convicting you of sin, repent. And there'll be people down here front to pray with you. If you want somebody to pray with, you can certainly do that in the quietness of your own heart before your Father who is in heaven, who hears your prayers. The invitation to repent is not the invitation to judgment. It's the, actually the opposite. It's the invitation to grace. And so as you go this morning, I want to remind you of these good words that when you repent of your sin, grace and mercy and peace from God become yours because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so hear this from Galatians chapter one. Paul writes to them and to us, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go. Have a great day.